Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Shout amen. 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 Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would uh, work supernaturally among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is our second week of a series that we've called Don't Panic. It's really about uh, how to contend with and win the battle of anxiety in your life. The big idea, idea is this, that uh, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ equips us, enables us to actually overcome and contend with anxiety day in and day out in our lives. Now, when I talk about anxiety, everybody shout anxiety. I'm, I'm not only talking about the kinds of uh, anxiousness we get when we're about to go out on our first desk, uh, date or take a, uh, a, a test or exam for the first time, but I'm talking about all the different ways that anxiety can, in a sense, begin to define and create a stronghold in our lives, express itself as worry and apprehension and fears that literally just begin to define who we are. And I'm excited to look at the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, this letter to the Christians in Philippi. If anyone uh, knows about anxiety, certainly he does. At the moment he's writing this letter, he's in a Roman imprisonment, uh, chained to a Roman uh, soldier uh, 24-7, awaiting uh, a verdict from uh, Nero that could potentially mean that he would actually be put to death. Uh, and yet, uh, four chapters of Philippians, we hear very little about his anxiety, and 16 times he writes about his joy. So, what is his secret? What is your secret, Paul? So, on last week, we learned uh, that part of his secret uh, is found in the fact. That uh, as opposed to panicking as he thinks about the future. Now, let me just say one word about this because I want to make sure I make this point. You know, anxiety is really about when I think about the future and I conclude that something bad is going to happen or it's going to not end well. And some folk would say, well, uh, in order to contend with anxiety, you've got to kind of reverse that. But that's not, that's not Paul's perspective. He's had too many bad things that happened to him over the course of his life in ministry to pretend that bad things will not happen. As a matter of fact, Paul knows that in broken life, bad things happen. Tell the person next to you, bad things happen. Tell them. Uh, But what he is saying is that, so he's not denying the reality of bad things. What he is saying is that, that because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, that at the end of the day, he concludes that bad things will not have the last word that Jesus will. So, for example, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see he opens his letter uh, to the Christians in Philippi with these words. Paul and Timothy, Timothy, we believe, is, this, is actually is, is, is helping to do the actual writing of this letter, scribing it. Paul and Timothy servants, everybody shout servants, <coughs> of Christ Jesus. That word literally means slave. And what Paul is saying, I've given myself totally 
to the purpose and to the power uh, and to the eternal destiny that is found in Christ Jesus. That's his way of talking about Jesus post-resurrection. You use this phrase, Christ Jesus. And so come what may, Jesus who conquered death will have the last word. And then you breathe and, and you contend with what awaits you. Now, Paul takes this posture, rather than panic, I'll choose to trust God, but out of relationship. He's in relationship. I'll give you an example. Here, let me uh, kind of talk about it this way. Uh, when I was in high school, many of you know, I've said this before on, regu- uh, on a number of different occasions, that growing up as a scarred kid, I used to chase a lot of girls. I just couldn't catch any of them. And, and you know, it was a, you know how high schoolers are, you know, kids in general. Uh, you know, you don't want to date the, the scarred kid because there's a social stigma attached. But by the time I got to 10th grade and, and from there forward, my whole academic career uh, and performance totally transformed by God. And so I would find myself in these, in these rooms, classrooms, where some attractive young lady who needed some help with her work uh, would start to flirt with me. So she would, you know, say, hey, come on over. You're looking really good today. And can you come over and sit next to my desk? And, and you know, no, no, pull real close, real, pull real close. And, 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 and you know, you, you think you can help me with, you know, this, this work. And they'd be smiling and batting their eyes. And, you know, and I'd be like, you know, heart palpitation stuff, you know. And, and, and soon as I help them, you know, they'd go back. They had no intentions of having a relationship with me other than my helping them in that assignment. And as I think about it, that's kind of how a lot of us do God. Right? We don't have an intention. We have no intentions of having a real relationship with God. We have no intentions of making God the object of our highest affection. However, when we find ourselves in trouble, we have a tendency to flirt with God. You know, you know, like, like, can you come close, God? You know, I'm, I think I'm going to go to church this, this Sunday, you know. If you can just kind of help me out a little bit. Please, right. just, just, just a little bit. Now, every now and then, I'd get cold around. But generally speaking, I'd go ahead and help the young women because just maybe. <laughs> and what's so extraordinary about God? Is that whenever you crack the door, God takes the posture, just maybe. Just maybe on this Sunday, you will really open your heart and experience all that I have for you. And so it's from within a relationship. Shout relationships. It's from inside of the relationship that we're able, when we are facing challenges, to choose to trust God. So secondly, Paul was here. So Paul would say, look, here's how I deal with my anxiety. I, I, I regularly choose to trust that God will work his purposes out regardless of what's showing up in my life. The second way that he would say is, has to do with chapter 2 and the insight that pops out real quickly. Is, uh, Paul would say, I've chosen to align my life with God's purpose. So everybody shout, choose purpose. Choose purpose. Choose purpose. So if you read the first 
the, the verse 2 ends rolling into verse 3 where Paul is saying, you know, be of the same mind and purpose. And then he lays out what I think are three very practical insights that really help us to manage our anxiety. I'm going to get back to the purpose uh, essentially in a moment. Paul is writing to Christians in the church of Philippi. And so the value and the insight that he's articulating is really an inside value. It's really an, it's a value and an insight meant for folk inside the Christian community. But if you learn what he's teaching today, you can actually take this inside value, this inside insight, and release it beyond the church and see it impact every aspect of your life. Paul says you can line your life up with purpose. There are three things that are practical that you'll be able to, 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 to implement. Here's the first one. Number one, he says, uh, the first thing you need to do in order to lower anxiety in your life, don't be selfish. Everybody shout selfish. Here's another way to translate it that, that makes it more practical. Here's exactly what he's saying. Don't be obsessed with gaining personal advantage. That's what he means. Everybody shout, obsessed. obsessed. He's really kind of talking about the chief motif of your life being that of competition. Now, quick story. On Thursday afternoon, I was in my office trying to be a faithful pastor. And I came out of a meeting and my senior assistant, Jamie, said, we had just received a phone call from a, a dear, dear friend of both Rhonda and myself. And they said that they had two tickets to the NBA Finals. And if we wanted to go, <laughs> They could make those tickets available. And I said, do I want to go? <laughs> I had Jamie to text Rhonda, two tickets, NBA finals. And next thing I know, Rhonda was negotiating with her patients. <laughs> and I said, look, God, for the next four and a half, five hours, don't let anybody die. Just, just give me a few hours, all right? <laughs> all right. So anyway, so we, we show up at the game. The seats were the bomb, y'all. Here's how I knew I was in the right neighborhood. Three rows behind me. Everybody say behind. Three rows behind me was Steph Curry's wife, mama, sister-in-law, Sitting right next to them with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. I said behind me, y'all. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> I said to my wife, I said, baby, we're in the right neighborhood today. Hot <laughs> dog. I was ready to sit right behind the, the score. The people who keep scoring three rows back. I can see it. <laughs> now, one of the things you realize when you're watching this thing, 
close and personal is how aggressive these players are. By the way, did I tell you guys we won? Did you? Did you? you know, you? we won? Yeah, 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 we won. We won. And, 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 and for Cavalier fans, I'm sorry. Uh, after the series, I'll pray for all Cavalier fans. <laughs> you may have to pray for me, depending on how it works out. <laughs> but, but one of the reasons we won that game, we out-rebounded the Cavalier players. Now, in order to out-rebound, you have to be obsessed with gaining advantage over the opponent. You have to get under that goal with, with, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, Tristan Thompson, and you got to box him out. And when you're watching it, I mean, it's almost like a fight. If somebody did that stuff to you, what I see on the goal, you'd be fighting somebody. I mean, I mean they're pushing and they're elbowing and they're pushing back and they're elbowing because they've got one goal in mind, and that is I've got to get the ball. So you've got to box out to get advantage in order to get the ball. That is how many of us live our lives. That, 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 that describes how we work. We are boxing out people. Our chief motif is to figure out what I need to do to get the advantage on your job, in your relationships. That's a competition motif. And Paul is not saying that there's something wrong with being competitive. But what Paul is saying is when the chief goal is simply about you winning, there's a problem. Now change the, the picture. Watch when the Warriors get the ball. One of the reasons why they're so good is because it's not ever about any one player. That they will pass the ball looking for the person who's the most open, and that person can take the shot. Whereas there are other NBA teams where you see one person, he is so focused on being the superstar that at the end of the day, he forces the team to lose, which means he loses. So what Paul says, you want to lower the anxiety in your life? Think about how to position yourself in a win-win in a situation. Think about how to make sure that you're trying to help others to win. If you help others to win, you'll win. And so Paul says, you want to lower anxiety? Don't make the chief motif be about being obsessed with gaining advantage. Second thing he says, you want to lower anxiety in your life? He's talking about this is a lifestyle change that I'm talking about here. It, it, it plugs into our hearts how we think about the world. He says, second thing he says, you, you, you want low anxiety? Don't try to impress others. Everybody, shout, try. try. Shout, impress. impress. All right, you got to watch that sentence. He does not say, don't impress others. But what he says is, don't Try to impress others. In other words, don't allow impressing others to become the number one goal in your life. 
Now, when we're talking about impressing others, what we're really talking about is a chief motif of comparison. You know, you've got a big house, I got to get a bigger house. How come you have that office and I have this cubicle? I had a nice car till I saw your car. Now I got to get a different car. Right? I'm pretty, you're pretty, I've got to be prettiest. Comparison. I'll tell you a story. A number of years ago, I went to, when I was in Boston, Pastor Rick Warren was invited to come to Harvard to speak. I got to sit at his table. It was a wonderful evening. I got to meet him. He's a great guy. Just down to earth, transparent. And the place was packed where we were. And there were some folk there who were skeptical of this evangelical pastor. But they were there because it was Harvard. He got up, and as he, as he started to share his story, it was remarkable to watch people's hearts and minds change listening to him. And here's the heart of what he shared that really was, I thought, was just transformation. He said that when he wrote Purpose Driven Life, that they sold 24 million copies. So if you just simply assume that he made a dollar a book, that's $24 million. He said he and his wife got together. Watch how he's pushing aside this notion of comparison. Him and his wife got together, and they decided that they were going to keep the same car they had, pushing comparison away. They weren't going to move out of their house and get a bigger house. They're going to stay right where they were. See that? Pushing comparison. They, I think he had been at Saddleback about 20 years by the time this happened. And so he added up all of the salary that they had paid him over 20 years, and he gave it back to the church. Then he put himself, he had the board to put him on a $1 a year salary. Then, you know, tithing in the biblical sense is to take 10% of what comes in and give it back out. He and his wife, again, got together and they said, you know what? We're going to live a reverse tithe principle. Remember, they made at least $24 million. So they founded a foundation focused on helping those who need help the most, both internationally and locally. And they took 90% of everything they earned from the book and gave it away to the foundation and made sure they were giving it away. And they decided to live on 10%. Now, his goal was not to impress. His goal was to bless. Now, here's the byproduct of it. If you live a life where the first orientation is to bless, the byproduct usually is it impresses. Watch this. Listen, Christians. Secular society is never impressed by how much prosperity we acquire. That's what they do. What blows their mind is not how prosperous you are, but what blows their mind is how generous you are. 
That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when they see somebody authentically generous, it makes not simply an impression, but it's impactful. So tell the person next to you, don't try to impress. Tell them. Try to bless. He says, you lower your anxiety when you're not worried about how cute you are, how smart you are. In comparison to others, you lower your anxiety. You're not counting how much money you can earn or how much you can keep in comparison to others. You want to, just wherever you are, your goal is how can I bless? Tell the person on the other side, that's a total different way of living. Tell them. Keeps your blood pressure low. (laughs) Lastly, all right, practical insight here, right? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress. Here's the third one. It's a summary of the last part of the verse. Forget yourself long enough to help others. Now, if if you don't write this down, forget myself long enough, shout long enough, to help others. That's what's meant when he says, all right, don't try to impress, be humble, shout humble. I'm going to come back to that, you know, we're going to ask the question how, and I can hear people saying now, humble, we're in Silicon Valley, what do you mean, humble? Humble people get run over. We're in Silicon Valley. Are you kidding? Humble people get left behind. I mean, you know, only church folk are humble. I, I mean, I want a job. I'm humble. We'll come back to that in a minute. He says, so be humble. Here's an expression of your humility. Think of others. The, the good news translation says, the NIV translation says, value others. The good news translation really captures both this thinking and this value. And it says, treat others as better than yourself. That's what he's saying, right? And then he says, don't just look to your own interests. It's NIV. Didn't say don't look to your interests. But it says, don't just, shout just, look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Forget yourself long enough. Again, back at the game. On the fourth floor, in case you don't know this, they sell some of the baddest catfish I have ever had. It is outstanding. So, I went up on the first floor, fourth floor. I got three orders of catfish and some fried chicken. Came on back down because we stood up for the first two and a half, two quarters, three quarters, two quarters and 50 minutes. I came back down and I I, I walked down on the floor, y'all, because that's the only way I could find my seat. And I came right behind the warrior's bench. Looney was there and I would have talked to him, but I didn't have nobody to hold my fish. 
But when I got back to my seat, I noticed something. What I noticed? In the beginning of the game, uh, I called him Zaza. In the first few minutes, he's headed towards the goal. He had a wide open dunk, and he threw it away. And then a few moments again, he did the same thing. And I'm shouting, Zaza, Zaza, come on, man. Get your head together. Forgive yourself long enough to help others. When I got back to the seat, I saw KD do for McGee what he had earlier done for Zaza, which he had been doing all night. Y'all know he had seven dunks that night, do you remember? So he had a wide open move to the goal. And he went straight into the goal rather than dumping it. He forgot himself long enough, passed the ball to McGee, both of them under the goal. So KD should have dumped it. The place would have went, wow, he would have got the credit, but he gave it to McGee so that McGee could dump it. Come on now, because it would build McGee's courage. It would build his capacity. It would build his skills. Come on now. And if McGee is better, and if Zaza is better, then the whole team is better. So forget yourself long enough. (laughs) To help others. It always comes back to you. Think about this. Now, think about this. I'm, I'm finished. Think about this. How would this change your marriage? Forget yourself long enough to hear your spouse, to help him. How would it change your relationship with your parents? Forget yourself long enough to see their needs. How would it change your relationship with the colleagues that you work with, that you're just fighting all the time and you don't like them? You know that? Forget yourself long enough to hear what you haven't heard before. I just, do you see that being revolutionary? Not easy, but transformational. That's, at the end of the day, what... Here's how the humility comes and we're finished. Somebody say, ask, how do you be humble? Ask. Okay, it's an insight. Insight. Philippians 2, 1, here's here's how Paul gets there. He says, here's how you can do this. He starts out, look what he says. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Shout belonging. belonging. The word means unite it. So he's saying, if you have totally given yourself to the purpose of God in Jesus, you know that you're secure in his eternal plan for your life. Watch this. Any comfort from his love shall comfort. Substitute the word with security. If you're secure in the fact that he loves you and that he's working for your good. Watch this. Then it sets you up for any fellowship Together, that word means koinonia. You remember last week? Mutual accountability. You're on the same team. If I know he's got my future, and if I'm secure in his love, then I can be a good team player. Watch what it says. All right, keep going. Uh, are your hearts tender and compassionate? If I know he's got my back, 
and that what he intends for me, I'm going to get, then I don't have to have a hard heart. I can be compassionate. I can forget myself long enough. Y'all in this list. And then he says, next verse, watch this. Then he says, so make me fully happy because of shared purpose, agree with one another wholeheartedly, love one another, and work together. But it all happens because I am secure. Shout security. Security. In his love for me. All right, let me drive it home. Last point, we'll, we'll make this, we'll finish this out. I'm not sure why this is like this. All right, listen to this. 15 years, 10, 15 years ago, I flew into Louisiana. I had an easily recognizable piece of luggage, suitcase. It was large, it was blue, it was raggedy. <laughs> so when I went to collect my suitcase, all I did was look for a large, blue, raggedy, suitcase and I saw it immediately I got it grabbed it boom went to Charlie's house when I got ready to unpack my clothes I, I got ready to open it and I couldn't open it again it was locked I got upset I said somebody done fooled around and locked my suitcase <laughs> so I was gonna get me a butter knife take the butter knife Try to unjet. I don't know how it got locked, but I got to get the thing unlocked. And when I flipped the suitcase over to work the butter knife, I recognized there was a marking on the other side that immediately told me this is not your suitcase. <laughs> Obviously, there was at least one other person on the planet who had a large blue raggedy suitcase. Not too long, the phone rings. They say, sir, you got the road suitcase? Yeah, I said, yeah, I figured that out. <laughs> they gave me, they, they came and delivered mine and took it back. Now, here's the insight. Listen to this. That suitcase was not mine. And I couldn't access it. Here's what Paul saying. This is what the minister Antonio said. If you truly have given your life to God's eternal purposes, and if you're completely confident and secure in his love, then you ultimately have to reach the conclusion that what God, the creator of the universe, has for you, even if it lands in the hands of somebody else, they can't access it. Because it's for you. Did you catch it? Come on, come on, come on. So, so I can be generous. I can promote you. I can elevate others. I can step back and let somebody else go forward because I know that God's got my back. And so my humility is anchored in my security.